Hi, and welcome to today's travel podcast. I interview park rangers and outdoor enthusiasts to share their stories and learn about the world outside our cities to better prepare you for your next adventure. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon contributors. If you'd like to be a part of our outdoor community, go to www.patreon.com slash days travel. Thanks and enjoy this week's episode. Hey, what's going on, Days Travelers? I'm Jason, and welcome to this episode. Right here, I have Jeff Davis with me, and he is the Assistant Superintendent of Palo Duro Canyon State Park in Texas, and we're going to talk everything that you need to know about this place. Um, So yeah, let's just dive right into it. Can you give us a little backstory about this state park? So Palo Duro is the second largest canyon in the United States after the Grand, and the state park is also the second largest state park in Texas. Um, the canyon, if you follow the river, uh, is about 120 miles in length. Uh, if you follow the way the crow flies, it's, it's about half that. The actual length of the canyon is around 60 or so miles. Uh, there are many branching side canyons. Um, some, some are named and some aren't. Um, but if you add all that up, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of acres of land. Um, part of what makes the state park so precious is that we're only about 5% of the entire canyon system in the state park. Uh, so the other 95% is privately owned in one way or another. Either there's some small housing additions in the north end. Most of it is ranch land. Uh, there's also a church camp not too far south of us in the park. So, you know, it really makes it a precious spot that anybody can visit. Uh, we uh, conserve a lot of natural and cultural resources. Um, Paladero is named for the Rocky Mountain juniper trees, which grow fairly commonly in the Rocky Mountains, but out in the Great Plains and the Southern Plains, they're not common at all, and it's only in these canyon lands that grow. Um, so the, the wood from those was used for thousands of years, um, especially after European and, and European people showed up, you know, for uh, fence posts, railroad ties, and wagon axles, and all, all kinds of things like that. Um, so the, the Spanish-speaking people named it Palatero, which means hardwood. Wow, that's pretty cool. I didn't really know that. Do you mind telling us a little about the landscape of this park, but also talk um, something about the lighthouse? Because I feel like that's one of the driving force of, or the main attractions of this park. Sure. Um, you know, so everywhere you look in the canyon, it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the canyon's known for all the colors in the walls, the, those colorful areas that are down low. Um, they're made of yellows, lavenders, a little bit of white, and then a lot of red towards the bottom. Um, those erode out in sort of a triangular pattern, and the the way the water runs down them and erodes them away gives them almost what looks like pleats. And so they're known as Spanish skirts because they look like a flamenco dancer's skirt, basically. Um, so those are very prominent, and, and you can see those just about anywhere you go in the park. Um, the lighthouse itself is uh, has, a, has a couple of different names for what kind of formation it is. Um, it's really an erosional remnant, so there was a ridge there at one time. And most likely uh, an archway, kind of a window form that made an arch, then eventually that arch collapsed and left the spire standing out on the end that we call the lighthouse um, because it looks a lot like a lighthouse you'd see along the ocean. Um, That formation is about 310 feet from the floor of the canyon to the top of it, so it's pretty tall. Um, There's lots of those types of formations in the park and other places in the canyon, but the lighthouse is kind of the big one. It's kind of the known one. Um, That's our definitely most popular trail throughout the year, and it's, uh, I mean, thousands and thousands of people hike out to see it every year. Um, it's about a six-mile round-trip hike to see it. Um, it's mm-hmm. mostly a pretty easy hike, a little bit of moderate. Uh, the only difficult part is at the very end, if you choose to go all the way up 
to the formation itself. There's a pretty strenuous climb. Um, it's probably less than a quarter mile in length, uh, but it's, it's, it's pretty difficult. Um, we always have to throw in a little bit about heat safety because in the summertime, you know, the floor of the canyon tends to be 10 or more degrees hotter than the rest of the area. And so you're right. looking at temperature times about 115 or 120. Um, because we're in a semi-arid environment, the temperature drops a lot at night. And so it might be 70 or 75 when you wake up in the morning. So if people plan their hikes early in the day, you know, start, uh, the park opens at 7 a.m. every morning. So they could start as early as that. Um, if they're camping, they could potentially start even earlier. Um, but, you know, definitely get out on the trails by 7 or 8 and then try to be off the trails by about 11 or so. Because after 11 is usually when we're starting to hit our 100 degree plus temperatures on hot days in the summer. Um, if someone does go for a hike up there on the Lighthouse Trail or anywhere else, they need to make sure they carry ample amounts of water. Um, for a summer hike to the Lighthouse Trail, we recommend a gallon of water per person and pet. Sometimes people don't think about their dogs, um, but they need water at that or maybe even worse than we do. Um, so it's, you know, it's vital that they have it too. Um, right. as as other forms, there, there's a variety of uh, what we call hoodoos throughout the park. Hoodoos are a formation, um, a big chunk of rock has come down. Uh, it's a big piece of grayish colored sandstone. And it comes to rest in just the right way, usually on a hillside or on one of those Spanish skirts. And over hundreds or even thousands of years, the rest of the hillside has eroded away. And that rock has acted like an umbrella and preserved a pillar of siltstone underneath it. So you end up with this big rock holding up, uh, you know, on top of a thin pillar of siltstone. So I've only been to this park twice. And it seems that with Lady Luck, the both times I've been to this park is during spring break. One when I was in college, and this time around, it just happened to fall on spring break. And the thing is, I was just wondering for all the listeners out there, what are like some of the best times you recommend to go to this park, like both weather and time of year wise? Would you say? Yeah, and you know that that can be tough because every year is a little bit different. Um, you know, we've we've had some times in August when it was super rainy. We got uh, a couple Augusts ago, we got seven inches of rain in one month, which is a lot for us. Um, typically, though, um, the spring and the fall are the best times. And so, you know, like April and May might be your best bets in the spring. And then, you know, October or so in the fall uh, is about the best, you know, before it gets too cold. Um, things kind of flip-flop as far as hiking times of the day from winter to summer, you know, because in the summertime you want to be on the trail early as, as you can and then off in the afternoon. In the wintertime, a lot of times it's cold, and so uh, things tend to warm up throughout the day and so you might want to plan your hikes in the winter for the afternoon um, there's there's just no as unpredictable as the weather is there's just no one-size-fits-all plan for Paladero. you have to take it a day at a time you know kind of plan trip each day as best you can and besides hiking and camping what other um, activities do you guys have in this park for sure um, we have a uh, concession in the park called the old west stables and so it's a private company that operates within the, the park boundaries and they do horseback rides uh, they're guided horseback rides on their horses, and so you can show up with no horse, no experience, and they'll take you out and, and get you a ride in the canyon. Uh, mountain biking is a huge thing. Um, we don't rent mountain bikes, but there are some shops in town in Amarillo that do. Uh, so, you know, even if someone didn't have a bike, they could potentially rent one and, and come out. Um, so that's a, that's a huge thing. Um, we also do have a wide variety of interpretive programs. Um, so the park has a, a full-time interpreter. Um, the, whose job is basically to create programs and give programs to the public and to school groups and things like that. And those are hikes, talks, star parties, 
uh, big special events like our History Day where we kind of celebrate the history, the living history of the canyon. Um, so we, we try to do a, a wide variety of, of offerings throughout the year. And what about the zip line? I think I saw it on the way into the park. Is it is that part of the park or is that kind of privately owned? Yeah, um, so the zip line is just outside the park. It's, it, they use a portion of the canyon, um, but like I said before, a lot of the canyon is privately owned, so they are on private land. Uh, but you'll come to them. It's a place called the Paladero Adventure Park, um, and they are just outside the state park um, on their own land. And you'll see the, the large tower um, uh, driving in right there close to the park entrance. Um, so they're, they're available. And then there's also uh, a place also just outside the park. They have land above us on the, on the north side called um, – it was called the Elkins Ranch for many, many years. It was recently purchased, and it's becoming uh, the Paladero Creek Ranch. So depending okay. on when people look into that, they may see Elkins Ranch or they may see Paladero Creek Ranch. And they do horseback rides and they do um, like Hummer tours. You might say Jeep tours, but they're actually in Hummers. Um, so you can, and that's all done on their private land. So a friend of mine was with me this time to uh, Paladero and she was super excited to see the slot canyons. But when we were speaking to the front desk, it seems like the slot canyons wasn't part of Paladero. And the first time when I went, I knew, I didn't remember seeing any slot canyons or knowing about anything about slot canyons. So when she brought this up, it was kind of a confusion for me. Pretty much the the ranger we spoke to, um, she I think she cleared up that it's not part of the the uh, the park and it's privately owned as well. And I just want to give this time for you just to clear that up. There have been some stories that went out about these, and there's a lot of information available from people who've made it to slot canyons. And there's a few different sets of slot canyons. Um, most of them uh, are either on private property, or you have to cross someone's private property to get to them, even if they're in the state park. Um, we so because of that, it would be you know potentially illegal to go to them because you're trespassing. But yeah. just because we don't have any trails in the park that are built to go to those, um, we we strongly encourage people to stay on the trails for a bunch of reasons. Part of it's for resource protection. You know, you never know what you might be hiking across and and creating a trail through and destroying. You know, an archaeological site or a you know a, a rare plant or something like that. Um, you also uh, put yourself in more danger because if you were to have a heat stroke or or twist an ankle or somehow get hurt on a trail. Uh, we have mile markers every tenth of a mile. We can get right to you pretty easily. Um, but if you're way off in the backcountry, uh, you know, in land that was not really meant for you to be on, then it can be much, much more difficult to find you, to get to you, to help you, and that kind of thing. Hey, I hope you're enjoying our show so far. And if you do, please consider joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash travel where your contribution will help us with our research and put out more content. Plus, you'll be giving back to Mother Nature. It's a win for everyone. Enjoy the rest of the podcast, brought to you by my contributing Patreons. So every time I go there, it seems like there's also always a fire van, and I just want to know what's um, like behind the scene. How's that decision being made? Sure, yeah. So uh, it's not... It is not uncommon for us to be under a fire ban. Um, that happens a lot. Um, I would say we probably spend more time under burn ban than, than not under burn ban. Uh, the way the decision is made is a collaboration between the park's natural resource person, he works for us in the park, and the local uh, you know, fire marshals and other agencies, the Texas Forest Service and groups like that. Um, you know, They all kind of put in their recommendations, and then uh, a decision is made by the county uh, whether or not to put us under burn ban. 
So pretty much if the, if the county's under burn ban, then it's Randall County is the one we're talking about. Um, so okay. if Randall County is under burn ban, then we will be also. And occasionally, even if they're not under burn ban, because we have such an intensive use of fire potential because so many fire rings and, and campfires and things, sometimes we'll be even a little more strict and we may go under burn ban even when the county doesn't. That makes sense now. So let's move on to a topic that I love the most, which is wildlife. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the wildlife here at Palo Duro? Just since you mentioned the, the steers at the front, so we have three Texas longhorn in the park. Um, they are part of the larger Texas state herd. Um, we just have three members, but there's several other state parks um, where they're kept. And so there's there's several hundred members in the entire herd itself. Um, the three that we have are, are a T-bone, brisket, and omelet currently. Um, so we keep those as a them. way to yeah, – we did. We sure did. Yeah, my, my predecessor, uh, the, the former interpreter, named them. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, uh, I mean, they're, they're domesticated. They're definitely not wild animals, but you know, I don't get too close to them cause they are large, you know, they're, they're almost a ton. They've got almost seven feet wide horns. You know, they're, they're pretty, pretty massive creatures. Um, but they, you can also see those guys at uh, Copper Break State Park and San Angelo State Park and, um, Fort Griffin State Historic Site. And that's where the, the main herd is kept is at Fort Griffin. Um, so pretty, pretty cool. We just keep them as a way to help keep the breed alive and tell the story of the breed and that kind of thing. So um, as far as wildlife, the deer are definitely one of the common things you see. And we have uh, both types of deer that you normally see in Texas, which is the white-tailed and the mule deer. The white-tails tend to hang out on the, the floor of the canyon, and the mule deer tend to hang out up at the top. Um, they'll sometimes kind of intermingle, but, but usually you see them that way. Um, the Audad sheep um, is not a native animal. It came from Africa back in the 1950s. But those are really popular for people to watch and see. Um, they can be very elusive. They hide really well. They blend in really well, and they climb up stuff where you and I would have no chance of climbing. You know, they're very sure-footed in the rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're they're a large, uh, tawny kind of a brown um, sheep with uh, with big curvy brown horns. So they're pretty pretty distinct when you actually do get to see one. Um, okay. Other things you might see. Uh, you mentioned cardinals. We have a wide variety of songbirds. We're kind of in in a interesting area sort of in between the eastern and western flyways of the United States. And so we get a pretty interesting mix of, of birds throughout the year. Um, a lot of birders come through. We do birding programs for the public. Um, you know, birding is a great sport for people because it can start with literally nothing. You can just go out with your eyeballs and that's all you need to get started. And from there you can move up to, you know, a simple bird guide and a set of binoculars. And that can go all the way up to people that travel across the world. You know, when they hear about a rare bird spotted somewhere, they'll, they'll jump on a flight and fly somewhere. Um, so it's a, a sport that you can spend as, as much or as little as you want to on. Okay. Um, other wildlife that's pretty common, uh, turkeys, uh, the Rio Grande turkeys that live in the park are pretty normal to see. Um, the roadrunner, uh, those are all over the place. Uh, we see a lot of the, the state bird of Texas, which is the mockingbird. They're always flying around. Uh, we have a huge variety of woodpeckers that live in the park, uh, golden fronteds and uh, ladderbacks and there's uh, yellow-bellied sapsuckers and uh, northern flickers and all, all kinds of woodpeckers that live in the park. Animals that used are a little less common to see, but they're they're definitely around. Um, coyotes, uh, bobcats. We do have mountain lions. They're very rare, very few and far between, and they're also very uh, averse to people. They don't want to be anywhere close to us. They're not spotted very often, but we do have them. Um, we have a, a wide variety of snakes that live in the park. Uh, the, most of them are totally harmless to people. Uh, the only one that could potentially be dangerous to us are two species of rattlesnake. We have western diamondback rattlesnakes and prairie rattlesnakes. 
Um, and, you know, for, for safety with wildlife, the most important thing is just give them plenty of space um, and be aware of where you are, uh, especially when it comes to snakes. If you're, you know, off the trail trudging through tall grass, you, you may step right on a snake or right next to a snake and never even know that he's there until he bites you. Um, but, but snake yeah. bites are very few and far between. Um, I've worked for the park for over five years, and there's been two snake bites in the time I've been there. Um, so, you know, that's millions of visitors during that five-year period. So um, it's it's a pretty uncommon thing. And, um, that you know, that, that general advice of just, you know, be aware of where you are and, and give lots of space to the wildlife always holds true for everything. Um, even things that you think might be kind of cute and cuddly, like a like a deer, could potentially be dangerous if they felt threatened. You know, they they do have a fight or flight response, like everything else. So um, typically they run away, but there's no guarantee. So I just want to thank you for being on the show, Jeff. Um, for this part of the the podcast, I just want you to just mention any programs or any events, any fundraising this park is doing. It's just really a plug for you guys. Uh, if you want to talk about that or not before I let you go. Um, so I'll just give just kind of general information. So we, we are, uh, I, I, re, I was the interpreter and I recently moved into a different role as the assistant superintendent. So the park does not at this moment have an interpreter, uh, which means that we're, our, our programming is a little limited right now. Uh, we're still doing some programs here and there, but we're not doing any really long-term planning until we get that spot filled. Uh, but if people are interested in our programming, they can either go to our Facebook page, you know, follow the park's events on Facebook, or they can also visit com, and there's a calendar link there, and they can see what we have coming up. Um, we're, we're pretty much at this point just planning uh, monthly events that we'll schedule. We'll, we'll publish those things towards the end of this month or next month. Any last uh, words to the audience that's listening to, to us? Um, I would just recommend that you know this is this is the park that belongs to the people uh, of the whole world really but especially the people of texas and the united states um, this is their park and i hope that they'll come out and visit and enjoy it and help us in our mission of stewardship of this amazing place i just want to give a huge thank you to jeff davis the assistant superintendent of palo duro canyon state park if you have some time and want to check that place out totally go for it just remember to reserve a spot beforehand. Thank you for joining us on our second episode of Days Travel, and I'll get to see you on the third one. If you like this podcast, please give it a like, download it, and share it with a friend, because sharing and downloading will help this podcast grow. Check out the Days Travel website. There's so many new amazing things happening there. D-A-Y-Z travel.com. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time.